0: Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. Glad to have you along. And we are here to talk soil health, cover crops, and all the other things related to soil health here on the Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. And today I've got a couple of experts on the topic uh, to to discuss it. And one is uh, a familiar voice here on the podcast, the director of the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, Lisa Holsher. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. And, and please do reintroduce yourself for folks.
1: Okay. Thank you, Eric. I don't know that I would call myself an expert by any means, but I know a lot of experts like Dave here. Um, I am the director of the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. We're a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. And our mission is simply improving soil health on Indiana cropland. And we get to work with folks like you and of course, great farmers like David to help make
0: that happen. And you mentioned David. We've got, uh, we're have got we crossing state lines today on the podcast and headed over to Ohio, Carroll, Ohio, to be exact, and David Brandt is there. And, David, uh, I hear you've been called the Obi-Wan Kenobi of soil <laughs> and that uh, Lisa calls you the godfather of soil health in a, in a good way. Uh, talk to me about your operation and how it is you kind of got into this whole soil health game.
2: Well, I guess I'll have to say uh, we're southeast of Columbus, about uh, 20 20 miles. Uh, We're right off of uh, Route 33, Uh, slightly in the rolling hills. Uh, Some of our farmland is highly erodible, and some of it has uh, some flat areas to it. Uh, Most of it's pretty poorly drained. Uh, And uh, I began uh, this journey, uh, my first field of no-till corn was in 1969 uh with an alice chalmers planner uh we had uh, the ohio state of course then it was the ohio state but i guess i have to say the ohio state <laughs> now and uh uh began and i know uh, two professors uh, uh dr sam bone and uh, dr drover triplet uh, said man i don't know what you're doing but let's see if we can make this work you know and uh that was how my journey began uh At that point, I was, uh, operating about a 450 acre. I was a tenant on a 450 acre farm with, uh, 90 Charlotte cattle and 90, 90 South spare to finish and, uh, uh, the niece of JCP, Penny owned the farm and we were doing the labors and owned the equipment. And, uh, we just had so much livestock and so much to do that. No-till was the only way I could go to afford equipment we needed, and the time it took to do it was very minimal to compare into conventional. You know.
0: Well, David, I just want to jump in there. I just want to jump in real quickly. So, being in West Lafayette, I I just have to say we call it an Ohio State University, uh, not the. (laughs)
1: uh,
0: But just just wanted to throw that in there.
1: Uh, Yeah. Right. (laughs)
0: Uh, but but let's let's go back somewhere toward the beginning here. You mentioned that first field back in 1969. Uh, you, you'd kind of come back from Vietnam. You're starting to farm with your dad. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about that history?
2: Well, you know, we, when I got back from Vietnam in 68, uh, went back to the home farm, which was about 58, 56 acres. Uh, when I left, uh, I was drafted in the Marine Corps right out of high school I had just got married about a week before I got drafted. I was milking about 40 Jersey cows. Uh, I know, uh, I was working with my grandfather my dad was a typewriter now, and adding repair man. And, uh, dad says, well, do you want to see if you get a deferment? And I said, nah, I don't need a deferment. They ain't going to take me. I just need to go get a physical, you know, and, uh, got on a bus in Lancaster and drove to Columbus to Fort Hayes, uh, uh, induction Center and passed the physical and this big colored fella come over and he looked at me and he says I need four volunteers and you're one of them and he says I said what for and he says you're in the Marines and you're going to to uh, to California to be a California Marine and he says you're leaving now and I says no I'm not and I think my call prints are still on the walls at the Fort Eight Center you know uh, to make a long story short so uh, Uh, Spent uh, 20 months in uh, Vietnam, uh, come back home and then bought Jersey cattle again and started melting and dad was killed on a tractor accident. Uh, We had just purchased the farm from grandfather my mom and dad had and uh, the story ended up that after the funeral, my one of my siblings says, I want my fourth of the farm and that forced that sale and that's why we moved on to being a tenant after that. So those were experiences I had before we started learning about uh, no-till and the things we could do with it.
1: So, David, I think that you are one of the longest, longest long-term no-tillers I know out there. It's like 50 plus years, 49 or 50 that's, years that you've been 100% no-till. That's correct.
2: We started in 1971 uh, 100% no-till, Uh we, you know, I said we started with a Alice Chalmers four-row planter with a brand new 3020 John Deere that cost forty-five hundred dollars a year. I bought it, uh, you know, and we still have that tractor today and restored it and uh, uh, still use it, you know. Uh, but uh, that's how we started. Uh, in the early '70s, we began working with Chevron Chemical because they come out with uh, Paraquat, you know, which was actually a a herbicide that just burnt everything off. You know, it's just like lighting a match out in the field. It just killed everything. And that was a blessing because when we first started, all we had was Acrazine and uh, 2,4-D. And I hate to tell you how many pounds of Acrazine we put on the first two years. We know till it would make you shudder today, you know. But uh, that's how we controlled the weeds when we first started uh i'm really excited about what i see today because there's not a piece of planning equipment that's not made that would not no-till fields today they're all learned how to build them heavy enough and put good displays and good openers on them to get the job done you know it's, but it's it was a challenge a in the early 70s it was a challenge in the early 70s because uh, Stuff just wasn't heavy enough to get get it through and get it into the soil when we first started, you know.
1: Well, well, Dave, I've I've heard this story, you know, going no-till and then adding cover crops in somewhere in the 70s. Um, What's the story there? How did you you move from no-till to using cover crops? And I mean, we're talking limited herbicides and limited ways that you could kill cover crops and control weeds.
2: Well, you know, we mentioned Ohio State, so you know we were kind of like the the uh, godfather to Ohio State, and you know, they kept coming down every other week or two, and how's the corn doing, and what's going on, and you know we would listen to to those professors saying, you know, we have to do this and that, and and uh, so we did no-till for three years after '69, uh, of course '71 was 100%, so about '73, '74 after doing corn behind corn or corn behind Hey, uh we started seeing yield losses and we couldn't figure out why you know and all of a sudden uh, a guy from kentucky comes up from the university of kentucky and he says you know we grow hairy vetch and and winter peas in the tobacco fields to improve the soil to improve the yield of the pack and i thought well guys if that works why can't we do it with corn and uh you know so we started using a single species cover and we worked with uh winter peas, we worked with uh, crimson clover, we worked with hairy batch, we worked with sweet clover, we worked with uh, all kind of good things. And of course, in the early seventies, there was set aside acres because it was production was, you know, there was too much grain evidently, they said, or you want to keep the price up. So instead of having our porous ground in the government program, we would rotate the field. We'd put, we'd put sweet clover in a field and leave it go for 18 months. And then when we put corn in that field, we would just see all kinds of yield enhancements. You know, we were producing 15 to 30 percent more corn than we could, than our neighbors could conventional, you know, and didn't have to buy as much nitrogen. And so that's when we started looking at doing nitrogen studies and those kind of things, you know.
1: So what you were doing in the mid-late 70s is kind of like what some of the farmers that we... We hear about, we, we talk about who are adding things like alfalfa and really lengthening out their rotation to add a lot more nutrient in the system. Which That's kind of true, right? That's
2: true. And of course, then, you know, in the early 80s come by, you know, the commodity prices were good and livestock prices were low. So, you know, I, I really listened to the professors again, you know, in Ohio State, and they said, you know, you cut the legs off the cattle and they cut the legs off the hogs and, You build hog buildings and put everything in confinement because you got to go take out all the fences and build do you know you got to have all out production you know uh so that's what we did you know we put the cows and the hogs in the barn and took out all the fences and went like they told us you know and today i wish i had all them old fences back and i wish all those barns were gone because i think we can do much better with uh a good rotation with animals and uh Uh, utilizing cover crops to do a better job to enhance our soils and eliminate soil erosion.
1: Agreed. And then some, I mean, I think about even my own brother, that uh, the fence rows that came out, everything that went into confinement, and how he wishes he had the fences back so that it'd make it easier to graze some cattle. but you know, thinking back to that time—that late '70s, early '80s—in my mind, and I was in middle school then, it was just like farming crisis, and it was—it was an ugly, ugly time. Was it that ugly for you too?
2: Well, I think it really was. It was, in respect, but you know, with our no-till, we you know we, we didn't have to do tillies, so we wasn't we wasn't spending hours sitting on a tractor seat with a three or four-bottom plow. I mean. It was something big to have a hundred horsepower tractor back in the seventies. I mean, you know, you thought she was uh, King Kong if <laughs> you had one that big and, uh, uh, you know, but I have to say really, I really appreciated the Chevron chemical company because they come back to the grassroots and they, they actually had consultants in Ohio and Indiana. They actually had salespeople that was in charge of those consultants and It was interesting we had groups like i was in a group of nine guys that we had a consultant for and you know he would drive around and just talk to everybody and mentor us and he'd say now don't feel bad if that corn looks crappy you know something will come back out of it and he was the one that bounced a lot of things off of us and we all nine of us did different things so it was interesting you know that uh dallas chalmers planter worked well and then all of a sudden we got john deere involved and of course they come out with the their planter, which made it almost wrench-free, and so we traded up to a John Deere, you know, because it was easier. And then, and then, of course, all of a sudden we had uh, Steve Geiggy come along, and he wanted to help us too. And then, uh, in the early early 80s, Monsanto was here, trying to do the same thing, uh, and we've seen it grow immensely in how all these things have come in to nutrition to help the producer today do a lot better job without facing all the uh, problems in roads that we saw early you know I mean uh, uh, I remember when Chevron came up and said now David you could use toxophene over the top of this corn and take care of out take out of all the bugs well it sure did I mean uh, a quarter toxaphene and everything would turn over and their feet be sticking up in the air and you know everything was dead we didn't have any trouble nothing they ate the corn.
1: <laughs> you know. yeah. Since, you know, that point in time, I, I, I remember Roundup coming out and how ex- how incredibly expensive it was, and uh, one of the brothers building a rope wick and how that made just a world of difference controlling Johnson grass in bean right. fields. But you know, things have changed a lot since that point in time too. How much right. you don't use nearly the amount of chemical today, do you?
2: Oh no, we're we're probably now. You know, we're not chemical free. We're not organic, and I have nothing wrong. I don't mean organics wrong i think organics are great but we just haven't decided that's what we want to do yet but you know we're probably have reduced our chemical outlay to the soils by 75 percent or better uh there has been years that we use absolutely no chemical and rely on our cover crops and our crop roller to do what we want to do uh in a year and we've learned a little bit of you know in the 80s, we were taught that the field had to be totally brown. And the only thing you wanted there was what you were trying to grow, like corn or soybeans. And if you had one weed in there, that might take 10 bushels of corn away. Well, today, if one weed's in the field or two weeds, I'm not really worried too much because the the hybrids today that we're using uh, are a lot more aggressive. They're, they're a lot more able to handle a little more stress than some of the corns did earlier. And that's been a great thing, you know.
1: So I think uh, David Montgomery, the guy who wrote the Dirt trilogy, said that you were organic-ish, and uh, I think he in his last book, this, I think that one was the Soil Will Save Us. I can't remember. I can't remember That's all right. of the names, but you were you were part of that book, and great read yes, for folks out there who yes. they haven't read it. Um, right. <laughs> so so thinking about using your roller crimper and using your cover crops. You think that's made a big difference in your weed pressure over the years? Oh well,
2: my uh, To me, it's it's made it easier. It's you know it made it made fun agriculture or farming or commodity growing a lot more enjoyable. I mean you know uh, I think uh, we've come a long way. I mean you know, for 30 years we we grew single species in the field because we didn't know that uh, we could grow more than one at a time. You know, we never we never took time back in the early 70s and 80s and 90s to to look at what was around us. I mean, if you look in a woodlot, we don't have all one oak tree. You know, I mean, if you look at the woodlot, there's probably 15 or 20 different kinds of trees in a woodlot. Uh, there's tall trees and short trees. And I guess uh, that wasn't pointed out to me until till about in the 2000s when I started thinking about how we could be more diverse and actually bring uh, nutrients up from the subsoil and bring it to the surface for our plants that we're trying to grow to make money on, you know. So uh, uh, we went to two species in the late 90s so with uh, Steve Groff with his Tillys Radish and I never will forget Steve called me and he says, I got this thing I think it'll work for you, David. And, and so Steve and I did a lot of work together to bring his uh, tillage reddish to Parishas, uh And it's known throughout the United States now as a thing to use in a
1: cover crop. Yeah. So you've gone from single species to, you know, let's, let's take it to the mid 2000s, early 2000s, about how many different species did you have in a cover crop blend at that point in time?
2: Well, uh, I worked with Steve from ninety six I think it was ninety-six or ninety-seven somewhere in there. Time gets away from me since I'm seventy-five years old here now. But uh, you're a baby. I just, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we went to two species, and of course, that's when I, I changed planters. I, I went down to the John Deere dealership and I said, "Looking, I, my planters getting old, and I've replaced everything about six times." And I'd like to have a new one. So I need a planter to plant corn, soybeans, wheat, and cover crop. And the owner of the John Deere dealership says, get out of my office. I don't want to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> like, we can't do that, you know. So I went to my white dealer, which was 100 miles away, and posed the same question to me. And he's a big fellow like I am. And he's rolled back in his chair. And he says, David, I don't know anything about it. But here's the phone number of the corn planter engineer at white you know you call him up tell him what you want and i will sell the planter to you when we build one and by golly i called the guy we worked together figured out how to do it and so we started in 69 or 96 with a white planter with a sugar beet plate and a soybean plate planting two species that was like the sun had come up again you know, the soil got loose, we found lots of nutrients, Uh, uh, we was able to capture 80 to 90% of the nitrogen we needed to have the atmosphere for our corn, and I thought I was on top of the world, you know, and then I, I had learned about a man called Gabe Brown in North Dakota, and, you know, he was always bragging about only having 10 inches of rain and growing corn, and feeding cattle and all this stuff, and, and I thought, man, I got to meet this guy, you know, and I learned that he was going to be in Kentucky, so I never will forget. I told my wife, I says, Gabe Brown's going to be somewhere in Kentucky, southern part of Kentucky, and she says, well, so what? And I said, I'm going to drive down there and give that man a hug for what he's doing, and I want to learn from him, you know, and she says, well, you're not going to spend that kind time. Of- I says, I'll see you later, dear, and I, and I drove to Kentucky. And it was noon when I got there, and Gabe was talking. And We got done, and I walked up and I gave him a hug, and I said, "Thanks for what you're doing." And uh, he was just, you know, we just became a friendship that just
1: was unannounced to anybody. And well, in I think now you called out the. I think you've called out the three Godfathers of soil health. Now yeah, you, right. Gabe, Steve yeah. Gross.
0: So.
1: <laughs> uh, So then I
2: I asked Gabe to come up. We always had a field day in the summertime or spring, you know, and and man. So I called him up and we had one in August and I never will forget. I had these peas and radishes in the field and I was so proud of them. They were probably nine or 10 inches tall and the radishes were two inches big around and 30 inches deep. And there was a hole in the field about the size of a wash tub, you know, and, and Gabe looked down there and he says, David, he says, If you had a little more diversity in this field, that brown space wouldn't be there, you know, and that was the challenge. And from then on, we've just, you know, we've went as high as 30 different species in a mix, but we're back to about eight to 11, being the ideal for us in Ohio to use as a cover crop. And that has just made our world so much easier.
1: I think every, well, I know every farm's different when it comes to their mixtures, their recipes for cover crops and what works for them. But, you know, let's let's take it back just a sec to the commodity crops, your cash crops. Um, How has that changed? from the oh, wow. yeah. early 70s <laughs> to let's let's take it step by step because it's kind of mind-blowing to me so let's go from the early 70s to say the early 80s what were you doing in, in well, the, early, the 70s early 70s versus
2: 80s yeah early 70s we were probably growing just pardon me just about enough to feed the cattle we had on feed and the hogs we had on feed uh you know we were probably averaging in the 70s 115 to 120 bushel corn and and uh 60 bushel 50 bushel wheat and uh 35 40 bushel beans we moved up into the 80s uh with some cover crop improvements we were we were, we're actually growing more commodities than we could feed uh, so they become a, a kind of a cash cow for us uh, and increased our yields by use of no-till and cover crops. Uh, I know I, the reason I started was the erosion. The farm we were on uh, in 71, soil and water said we were losing 11 tons of soil per acre by doing conventional tillage, and that's why I went to no-till. And I must say today, the farms we farm today lose less than 200 pounds of soil a year. You know. So just imagine if we go from from whatever the well, – I'm going to tell you what the national average is. The national average is 5.2 ton for the nation. That's water and wind erosion. And if we could just you cut that in half nationwide, just think of the amount of nutrients a farmer would not have to buy because he kept half the soil on the farm. You know.
1: Think of the amount of nutrients. Think of the clean – the clean water—the difference that would make—it—it it would be tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Um, That's correct. So, you know, let's 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 look at the '90s. Things started changing a little bit there, right? Because I mean, yes, you live outside of Columbus. I can only imagine that you have a lot of development pressure. And uh, right. 1990s development kind of was insane. Did that affect you yeah. a lot? Yeah.
2: Uh. Through the nineties well, nineties through now till now, well it was about seven or eight years there when the building industry kinda of went defunct and it was interesting. Uh in the late nineties there was actually farmland that sold in the eighties for development for ten to twelve thousand dollars an acre was bought back and this farm today for like six and seven thousand, you know. Uh and we did buy one of those farms uh back at it came back from a developer that we bought and we still have the plot map so i guess maybe in the next 60 years it'll have houses on again someday because the price is getting up there where you can't really say no anymore but uh uh, you know it was a challenge to find you know in the late in the early 90s we were farming about 1100 acres and we got down as low as 700 acres at the end of 99 to the year 2000 you know just because it was hard to uh, nutrition was taking it out with houses, and uh, it was hard to find land, you know. And that's what we looked at, given commodities recording. to do, yeah.
1: It, and in that 99, 2000, you know, 700 acres, people will tell you you can't survive on that. It's not enough acres if you're growing just corn and beans. Um, how, did you, how did you change things up? I mean,
2: what, well, we, what we, did we you change. do in
1: order to survive?
2: Well, you know. I never will forget my wife told us, you know, 90, in 96 we lost the 200 acre farm that built 550 homes on. It. You know, and I was so mad. I mean, I, I couldn't didn't talk to her for a couple days, and I was kicking stones and throwing rocks and trying to figure out how I was gonna make the payments, you know. And she says, She says, Don't you understand that we need to find things that we can do retail? David, and she says, you know, so we started to grow uh, well, we we're growing cover crops, so we decided. Well, let's just plant with the with our white planter. Let's just plant uh, three rows of pumpkins in rye and hairy vetch. You know, so we did that on seven acres, and uh, and uh, uh, it worked really well. I mean, you know, we didn't think we, you know, and then you know here we had these nice pumpkins. They were probably basketball size to uh, three foot across, and We had planted some different colored ones. We had orange and we had whites and we had wrinkled ones, you know. And then come September the 15th, she said, how are we gonna harvest these? And I said, well, I think the only thing to do is just put a sign up, you pick, you know? And uh, it was interesting that that seven acres of pumpkins that year made more money, more net money, than 100 acres of corn did net, you know? And uh, that taught us a lesson. So uh, I guess I, I look at the urban person as having cash, and it was the cash cow because you know they, they wanted to buy their pumpkins with cash, and and uh, today that's changed again. Now everybody wants to use plastic, uh, so now the government knows what we're doing. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you have to learn to be diverse. I think we have to learn to lots of things uh, you know it's great if you can farm eight or ten thousand acres and do that and make a living but you know when the crunch time comes sometimes we have to make make minor monumental changes in your thought pattern to survive you know
1: so you, you've told me some great stories about growing sunflowers and things and the neighbors just kind of going ape over them you still grow sunflowers and the neighbors still grow
2: oh, eight yes, over them? Yeah, we still growing sunflowers. Uh, we have 30 acres out this year. Uh, I had a good friend that's 150 miles south of well, the Ohio River. Uh, and you got, you got to realize this is a, a a hillbilly farm, you know, and they have cattle and they have hogs and, uh, and they're doing lots of things. And they had planted 13 acres uh, two years ago. And he came up and got the sunflower seed from us and he had, a, I think it was a, The 1950 Dodge pickup truck and the fenders were flapping coming up there, you know, and uh, in the fall, we come back up and got cover crop seed. He had a new brand new Dodge truck, white with sunflowers all over it, you know, and I says, what's happened? And he says, David, he says, I took a lesson from you. He says, my daughter got on Internet and she scheduled photograph appointments for $50 for 15 minutes. And he said, that's what bought this pickup truck. And I just looked at him and my, oh, my mouth cow. fell open because I didn't think about that.
1: <laughs> you <know. laughs> well, you've been thinking about a lot of things. It seems like every six months or so, you give me a call to tell me about what new thing you're trying. I mean, there's always something. I mean, how many, last year it was bird seed, right?
2: Yes. That we, you we started add- that, uh, we're still we're still fine tuning that. We did grow bird we did grow sunflowers and and sorghum and sold it to wholesale to a bird feed company. I think this year we're probably going to end up doing it and packaging it ourselves. Uh, we've learned how to get the formulations done now, and uh, so as soon as fall harvest is over, we'll probably be selling Walnut Creek bird feed. You know, <laughs> and, uh, which will be exciting. Then, uh, like I say, you know, we're always we're always trying to think outside the box. Uh, I told uh, Lisa a couple weeks ago that we had uh, we have three different kind of open pollinated corn. Not that we need to go oh, backwards. Oh, and if you I,
1: haven't yeah. seen the pictures, the pictures are gorgeous. The ones that Jay has posted. Um,
2: okay.
1: Beautiful corn. Uh,
2: uh, so we have yellow open pollinated corn, and we have purple. open pollinated corn, and then we have one from Spectrum Seed called Orange Corn, and it's going to be designed mainly for the brewery industry uh, to make alcohol uh, because it has, they say, once we harvest it, it should have 11% protein. It should have more vitamin A and amino acids than any other yellow corn that we have, and it's a flint corn, so it's going to be one that they can... Seem to make more alcohol uh, out of, so it's going to be interesting to see that comes come around. And my wildest hair right now is looking at a stone mill that we can grind cornmeal and wheat and make flour and sell it, uh, hopefully for about sixty dollars a bushel. You know,
1: instead of three. Crazy. <laughs> um, you're growing. <laughs> Now, I know, I know. <laughs> well, you, yeah, I shouldn't say that, but I did. So I know um, a good number of, far- of farmers and a growing number of farmers that are moving to a wide row corn, like 60-inch corn, um, grazing it. You're growing 60-inch sunflowers now. You told me that a couple of weeks ago, too. What's, what's yeah. up with that?
2: Well, I think, you know, with our 60-inch flowers, we're seeing the head size get bigger. We've got flowers out today that's probably got two-and-a-half or three pounds of seed in the head, you know, and uh, uh, just that,
1: can't what's wait. What's the to difference between that and a regular field, two or three pounds? Well, a regular field, they'll head. probably or be,
2: well, the head will probably be six or seven inches, and these are like eight or ten, you know, just the difference in the size. They've just got bigger, Uh and we have a 10 weight cover underneath there that's growing, so when we harvest the sunflowers, we won't have bare soils, you know.
1: Okay, so for everybody out there, tell them what the what the cover crops look like because I have this in my mind um, when you're telling me about the mix and just how beautiful it must be right now.
2: Well, we started. We our mix has uh, uh, buckwheat, which bloomed three weeks three months three weeks ago. And then we have flax that bloomed two weeks ago. Uh, now we have sunflowers that's blooming, and we also have a little bit of sun hemp in it uh, and i don't think the sun is going to cause any problem at harvest it's the same size as a sunflower but so what we're trying to do is build a diverse flowering mix that we can collect early fall honey from right now we have 11 hives out there uh, most of the hives have uh, five to six four inch supers on them uh Nine of the hives have five supers on, and four of them are full of honey now. And supposedly, they tell me there's about 30 pounds of honey in every super. So, you know, we're going to have probably close to 800 to 1,000 pounds of honey off of 30 acres, uh, which will be That's another be a
1: sticky job.
2: …resale item, you know. <laughs>
1: So, oh, you know, you've got, you've got no-till. You've got all these all of these cover crops, these different flowers blooming all of the time. What about the native pollinators? What's, what's that look like in your field?
2: Uh, well, you know, our native pollinators, you know, we use a lot of uh, uh, flowering things uh, that are, uh, I'm going to say they grow every year, the biennials, And we keep them around the perimeter of the field so we don't have to replant them. Um, you know, we have clover and and hairy vetch and crimson clover. They'll be blooming in the spring, so we get an early flush of honey from that. Uh, we don't plant corn early. We probably don't start planting corn until about the 20th of May, waiting for these covers to get big enough that we can roll them, but they're in bloom, so guess what? The bees are making a lot of honey for a week or two there also. And by having that diversity, we actually can crowd out the, uh, the mare's tail. We can crowd crawl out the uh, giant ragweeds and the winter annuals. We just don't have anymore, you know.
1: That's amazing. That really is amazing, you know. And you talk about how many pounds of honey you're you're harvesting. The size of the sunflower heads. Um, I know that you've been doing some work with Rafiq Islam at the Ohio State University. <clears throat> <laughs> So about nutrient density of the crops that you're growing versus crops grown in a more a, a more heavy tillage more traditional type system what do, what Correct. do you find in there right.
2: well what we what we're trying to do is determine what we can do with uh, with varieties of corn and also soybeans you know but, uh, Our main idea was first to see if there was a way we could enhance uh, what we're seeing in protein in the corn. You know, uh, we do in our, and we have about 300 acres of corn and we have about 300 acres of beans and then we have 300 acres of small grains. And of course the small grains go to cover crop. Uh, So we're planning a variety plot every year to find out how varieties respond so to summarize real quickly we use uh, pioneer we use uh, spectrum we use uh, 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 great lakes varieties uh, and then we also use some private little breeders around to see what's going on and two years ago we had two varieties from spectrum was 111 day variety uh Everything else was the same other than the variety. And a difference in just the yield of these two varieties, the profit per acre from 111-day corn on one variety was $57.93. And the same, well, not the same, another variety that was 111 days, we had $227.05. So what that told us was the one variety liked our cover crops and the other variety didn't. You know. And going along with that, the variety that had less yield also had less protein. Uh, it had 7% protein, and the one that made $227 an acre had 8.5% protein. So uh, in 2000... It's a substantial uh, difference. Right. In uh, 2019, we had 19 different varieties of corn in our plots, and it ranged from 6.8% Protein to 11.4. Now, if we can grow 11.4 in your cattle or a hog producer, that is a 30% reduction in soybean meal that they have to buy. You know, to grow that kind of that's, corn.
1: That's huge. And for our Indiana listeners, you know, a large, the majority of our corn and bean crops go towards livestock production. So that that can make a huge difference in state too. Um, you know, just thinking about our conversation just a couple of weeks ago, you're maybe losing more to to development again in the next couple of years, aren't you?
2: Yes, correct. We're probably going to lose 120 acres this fall. And I know in two years with, uh, they're going to change uh, Route 33 and put a big bypass in we know in two years we're going to lose another 120 acres. because the bypass goes right through the center of two of the farms we farm. You
1: know. And I'm just sitting here shaking my head. But at the same time, in the past few years, well, of course you've got your son Jay and his wife Anne That's been farming with you for how many years now?
2: Uh, they've been involved. Uh, they have been involved in the seed business seven years. And, of course, okay. Jay's got a full-time job, and his daughter-in-law, Ann, runs the seed business and tells me what to do every day,
1: you know, so. Uh. <laughs> so the women in your life, Ann and Kendra, tell yeah. you what to do every day, as it should be. Right, right. Um,
0: so. So, someone's got to keep them straight, right? <laughs> and I listen, I listen really well, too. The, you
2: know, I'll you that out. I listen really well.
1: So, but, but, you know, you're losing ground, but at the same time you've got a grandson that's coming back to help and two of them that's coming back. How can that work?
2: Well, uh, Noah's grandson came back two years ago and he was in college and was having a little problems and he came back and he says, "Man, of course, you have to realize Jay lived in Chicago till seven years ago. So these boys boys grew up in town pushing the keyboard or looking at the screen and not understanding what labor really meant. And to have him come back and say he'd like the farm has been a real thrill to me. And uh, he has stepped up to the plate. I mean, from doing nothing to what he's doing today, you know, he's learned how to run the sprayer. He's learned how to mix chemicals. He's got his chemical license, uh, uh, he's learned how to wrench on things because grandpa's big enough he can't bend over anymore so he happens to be my my fellow that does all that bending and lifting and i just stand there and and uh, enjoy you know but uh so we're looking you know we're always looking for new adventures and of course we three years ago we built a cleaning facility so we are cleaning grain custom cleaning grain uh which will be uh, an uh indemnity of all its own uh the farm grows uh cover crops for the seed business uh the farm stands alone the seed business stands alone and my goal was on our farm here i have six grandkids and if each one of them wants to come back home somehow they would have enough entity to make a, a living it might not be a good one but they can survive and enjoy themselves and that's why we're now looking at the stone mill to see if we can do Flowers and cornmeal and those kind of, and bird feed as a retail sales, you know, and not worry about losing ground and making the ground we yep. have more productive,
1: you know. And then some. Um, so thinking about changes. I mean, it's a big change from. Did you ever think you'd be here 50 years ago?
2: No, no, no. No, I never thought we'd be here. I never thought we would learn. I mean, I always, when I first started, I guess I always thought I had to rely on uh, the fertilizer the chemical industry so I could survive. And, you know, back in the early 70s and 80s, you know, they were taking 85 to 90% of my income just to pay those bills. You know, today, today, uh, they're only about uh, 12 and a half or 15% of our money. That we spend today Uh, so we're able to keep 80 percent of our money here at home Uh, mainly because we've learned how to utilize cover crops to bring up nutrients from the soil or collect it from the atmosphere and as you eliminate erosion it takes less and less to maintain that soil as it does if you're uh, having that nutrient leave through either erosion or water runoff And I think that if we could ever convince our uh, so-called people that know what's going on, that phosphorus and potash just don't get off the field and run off, it runs off with the soil. If we can keep the soil there, that will be how we can lower some of these costs, you know, and improve water quality immensely.
1: Yep. And um, in the amount of carbon we can suck out of the atmosphere, too. You've increased your soil organic matter, and we're talking a lot of carbon storage here. What? So in 50 years' time, what's the change been like?
2: Well, I we bought my grandfather's matter. farm in 1973, it had a 1.1% organic matter. Today, it has an average between 6, 8 to 8%, according to the corn planter. Our new corn planter gives us organic matter on the, run, on the move, and I was dumbfounded to watch it this summer or this spring as we was planting corn. We had as high as nine percent organic matter in some areas in a forty-acre field.
1: And they said it couldn't so be we have, done. We have made
2: some strides there. <clears throat> you know,
1: you got to be you got to be really proud of yourself. You know the changes in the farm, keeping the farm, bringing so many kids back. To the farm and adding all of this diversity without soil been, health it, systems could you have done it no this would not happen without
2: soil health systems it's not it would not happen if it wasn't been for people questioning you people wanted to call you and say what are you doing how can i how can i do something similar uh having mentors uh that actually, you know, it's a real challenge to know some of these people uh, that are doing the same thing we're doing today. You know, I look at uh, people in Indiana that I really respect and uh, that I think has done a tremendous job of improving their soils. You know, Dan DeSutter is one that challenges me a lot, and I like Dan, and, uh, you know, I because I'm talking, and I can't. My mind's going 600 different directions, and I can't remember all the names. But you know, we have Darren Williams in in Kansas. That uh, a young man that was here seven, six years ago. That was a carpenter, went home and bought a farm and began and is in this thing of grass-fed beef now and uh, selling cover crops and doing things. Uh, they're the ones that mentor me. I mean, I forgot a lot, and they guys just reinforce what I've said, and it's a privilege to know these people uh, like Rick Clark. I mean, I look what Rick has done and how he's moved to organics, and uh, I'm just so proud of all of them. Uh, it's, it's, no longer, uh, it's no longer Dave brandt says. I mean, I, you, you can go to any state, you know, in the United States now and find people that have done what we've been doing for 50 years, done it for three or four, and they're successful at it, you know.
1: But they learn from you, Dave. I mean, I, I feel privileged that I get to talk with farmers like you and Rick and Dan and all of the, this whole network of farmers and learn so much from you all. But, you know, just to, to drop a drop a story, you know, I remember, gosh, must have been 2012 down in southwest Indiana, You came out with Ray Archuleta and did a couple of field days. And it's it's, this is kind of typical of the Dave Brandt story. A farmer down here, Mark Anson, he hated farming at that point in time. Their family was farming like 20,000 acres. And after listening to y'all, he came away from that of, I can change the way this works. And it's just like his attitude was not worked. It was night and day. And they went from a tillage operation to no-till and cover crops in no time flat, and that's the kind of story that I hear time and time again about people who have heard you talk and the influences that you have. It, it's it's just incredible the changes that you've made, and you and all the other Godfathers of soil health have made in this. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I
2: I was fortunate enough to. Speak to John Ashelman out of the Palouse area in Washington State. Oh, yeah. And was fortunate enough to be invited to go to his place. And uh, man, you know, uh, you talk about dark soils on uh, higher than 20% slopes. I mean, he actually scared me riding in a tractor. <laughs> I, mean, I don't get scared very often, but I think if we had opened the cab door, it would have hit the ground, you know, like how steep <laughs> the ground was. <laughs> That, uh, but to see what he's done with cover crops and how he went from summer following and tilling all summer long to to cover crops, and then he brought uh, he's brought corn into his rotation, he's brought some soybeans into rotation. It's all wheat country out there, you know. Uh, and to see that happening, and you know, we have a, a hops farmer in Washington State that uses our covers and uh, improved his hop production by 15 to 20 percent. I mean. Things just, I just can't believe how when we take care of the soil, the soil takes care of us, you know.
0: You're listening Great. to the HAT Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about CCSI and view their calendar of soil health events at CCSIN.org. And David, uh, before we wrap up here, it's a question I ask uh, the majority of our guests here on the Soil Health Podcast. What one piece of advice do you have for someone who's listening to this podcast and they're thinking about getting started in, in no-till, cover crops, soil health efforts? What piece of advice would you give?
2: I guess I would like to tell them to start slow. You know, the best the best way to go to, to learn about cover crops is to grow wheat or grow rye after corn that's going to soybeans so they get used to looking at it, uh, get used to their equipment being in it. You know, it's quite a change from going to looking at brown soils to a green cover, finding covers that's kind of yellow in the summer, like uh, corn, and, you know, you can't see the bare ground, so the corn don't look as nice as your neighbors. And always try to find someone that you can talk to to mentor you through the problems. I mean, don't you, there's no longer a reason to be out here alone. There's enough people that's willing to help to bring you through any problem you can see. And uh, I got to tell you right now, I used to think it was easy. Uh, and it's, you know, no-till and cover crops are not for the weak heart. If you're not wanting to change, just don't try it. I mean, because, you know, it's just, there's challenges and you need to face them. And then you need to talk to someone to figure out how to do it. You know, uh, it's not a piece of cake, but the rewards are like eating chocolate candy. It's wonderful.
0: Lisa Holsher, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. What a great conversation with you and, and David today. Thanks for doing this. And thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, you're the reason we have a Soil Health podcast to begin with. So thank you very much.
1: And thank you thank for you. helping do these. Um, it helps us get a message across to a much broader audience. Thank you. And thank you, David.
2: Yes. Enjoyed it.